0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Pharmacy Magazine Talking Pharmacy podcast. We're here to look back over what's been happening in and around pharmacy over the past week. Richard Thomas is away, so I'll be doing my best to take over and step into his shoes. I'm Rob Darricot, editor of P3 Pharmacy Magazine. And joining me on the pod this week are Helena Beer, editor of Training Matters, Neil Trainis, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist, and Arthur Walsh, editor of Pharmacy Network News. So as usual, we're going to dip into the news To find out who we think has had a good week and who's had a bad week. So let's start with who's had a good week. Neil, who's had a good week for you?
1: Hi Rob, yeah, it's been been quite a lot happening in the last few days. I think um, one thing that caught my eye was uh, Michael Grade, uh, the the former TV executive, former chairman of the BBC, now known these days as Lord Grade of Yarmouth. Um, chair of the uh, gambling industry committee. Um, he he was in a, a debate in the Lords, uh, I think it was on Monday, um, in which he, and full credit to me, he, he actually praised independents, so he should, um, and he described them as the most, of uh, the job that they do is absolutely priceless and uh, I think there was a bit of debate in the Lords about the £370 million uh, advanced funding that pharmacy got. We're trying to... Hopefully will be written off as as uh, as money that won 't have to be paid back um and he and he he, he went into a, he launched into a pretty impassioned kind of defense of independence uh, with that money in mind. He said you know that some of the most vulnerable in our communities depend on independence for medical advice and deliveries of vital prescriptions. Uh, he went on to say that it's totally unrealistic for the Department of Health to point to some recent funding help as if that is going to solve the problem. And he said it was nowhere near enough to keep pharmacies in business, let alone allow pharmacists to have a day off or even earn a living. Um, So pretty strong stuff coming from Lord Grade. And he also went on to say that if that demonstrates that the department, um, it it just demonstrates that the department fails to understand why independent pharmacies are, are still in such grave peril. So I thought, you know, looking at the debate, reading what he said, I thought, wow, you know, good good, good for you, uh, Mr. Grade. Um, and I think independents will look at that and think, you know, we've got a, a, a Tory here who actually understands what independents are going through and understands that the £370 million in, in that funding, you know, should be written off. And he was responding to Lord Bethel in that debate, uh, who's obviously at the Department of Health, um, who actually seemed to suggest that, you know, the £370 million that the government had paid in advance payments to, was simply aiding cash flow. It was almost as if the sector should be grateful for that money. Uh, you know, look what we've done. This is what we've done. And, and Lord Gray picked him up on that. So um, I, I, full credit to Lord Grade, you know, whether or not his words have any impact. It was the Lord's after all. Uh, it wasn't the Commons, but regardless, you know, it, it was a full credit to, to Lord Gray for picking him up. He describes um, independence as frontline heroes, which, which I, I, I certainly don't think was overstating it. Um, and it was really really powerful stuff and very true. So that, for me, um, Lord Grade is my uh, star of the week. I think rather.
0: that's excellent stuff, isn't it? I I, I mean, a fair play to whoever got all that briefing material to him because you know you saw that I saw your story and Lord Grade. You know that's a fascinating place for that to come from. So somebody clearly has has been having some conversation with Lord Grade because he had all the numbers and all the arguments. stuff pat, didn't he? So yeah, very impressive stuff. Um, Helena uh support staff continue to be in the news so what would you pick out as being a particularly good week and for who
2: um yeah hi rob um so my good week is for aspiring pharmacy technicians um so it was announced that the university of east anglia is becoming the first higher education institution in the uk to offer a GPHC accredited training course for pre-registration pharmacy technicians and they'll be taking their first cohort in September and I think I'm right in saying there's another one in February as well. Um, So I think it just goes some way to to recognising the pharmacy technician contribution to healthcare and kind of pharmacy as a whole Um, and um, also will hopefully go some way to advertise the pharmacy technician profession as a viable career pathway for, for school leavers who don't necessarily know it's an option um, and there's also like the potential of furthering the profession as well so kind of setting a new and um, recognized higher standard for the profession um, you never know what kind of knock-on effect that'll have with fostering trust with customers and patients if they know that there's that that recognized standard but also I think there's huge <coughs> potential for the future so expanding their their remit and who knows where it might lead? It, it could could open up lots of different conversations um, about expanding the clinical role of pharmacy technicians um, and things like that. So, yeah, really, really exciting development, I think.
0: I think also, I mean, I, I thought it was interesting for two reasons. One, because it had our recent friend David Wright at the heart of it. So uh, interesting things going on at UEA. But also, I think I'm right in saying it's the first time we've seen pharmacy technician qualifications located in the same place as a pharmacist qualification.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always been um, uh, kind of pharmacy based or like distance learning um, based previously. Um, Whereas, yeah, it's the first time it's been part of a school of pharmacy, which is definitely a, a step in the right direction, I think.
0: So that's really one to watch and presumably you'll be, you'll be following the first cohort of students with some interest, yeah. I guess.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Um, we'll look forward to seeing what they can achieve.
0: Excellent stuff. Right, Arthur, who's had a good week for you?
3: Um, who's had a good week? I don't know if it's a good week so much as an interesting week, but the GPHC wrote to pharmacies on, was it Tuesday night, about uh, COVID antibody tests. Saying we know that you know these are legal, you can't provide them legally, but you oughtn't to. And where we find out that you're doing it, we're going to write to you and tell you to stop. And I mean, I don't think anyone could really argue with the public health case there that you know, COVID antibody tests, we don't know um, if you have antibodies yet, we don't know yet how much protection that gives you against getting the infection again, or you know, more importantly, you could have the infection and not have symptoms and you know go on spreading it again but i don't think anyone could argue with that case we just there the evidence isn't there yet and if you tell somebody they 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 have antibodies they might have you know they they might feel overconfident and change their behavior i had a few pharmacists get in touch with me privately to say they were worried about it It was potentially a case of the regulator overreaching which isn't necessarily a new concern during the pandemic and the gphc spoke out about locum rates and um prices for OTC medicines. Again, like all valid concerns, but is it the GPH, GPHC's role? I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's an interesting debate. So that's that's my interesting week rather than a good week.
0: Any thoughts, Neil?
3: Yeah, I,
1: I, I, well, I, absolutely. I mean, I, talking about locum rates and all the other issues that have cropped up during the pandemic... Absolutely, Arthur. I mean, I, I I don't think personally that the GPHC should be poking its nose into those kind of issues. I I think you, you're looking if any cost-related issue, any kind of so-called exploitation of the marketplace, which we've seen, that's a CMA issue. That's not a GPHC issue. So I can understand the argument that the regulator is overreaching a little bit beyond its its um its remit. It's a CMA issue. So I agree, totally agree with that. Yeah.
0: Well, it's gonna it's an interesting one. I, I think um. I think we'll have to see how that plays out. And I'm sure that we'll be very, I'll be very interested to see what reaction uh, you get, after to your tweet about this last night. uh, Just posing that question about whether it is an appropriate area for the GPHC to get into. Uh, All feedback welcome, I think it's fair to say. It's it's certainly a lively discussion.
3: From what I've seen, I I think a lot of people seem to be persuaded by the idea that um, it's the GPHC upholding evidence-based medicine, which, you know, is difficult to argue with.
1: Just just one thing actually caught my uh, attention yesterday. I think we were discussing it, uh, Arthur, weren't we? yesterday, um, about the the rolling out of it or the GPHC's attitude to antibody testing. And, and their attitude, of course, Duncan Rudkin sent a letter out to all the pharmacies saying, you know, we, we prefer you not to, certainly not to sell the kits and also to to not... You know, to not roll out the tests, you know, to not in any, in any uh, uh, shape, you know, that's in-house, in-pharmacy testing. It's not allowed, basically. But I just thought it's quite interesting that uh, Superdrug are, are doing that. They've embarked on that. So the, the question we put to them, to the GPHC, was, you know, well, if Superdrug were allowed to do it, why not? Why are you telling other pharmacies they're not allowed to do it? Why are they, you know, the perception is that the big boys are allowed to do it, but you know, the smaller guys are not. And we, the response we got was that, we don't. We, Superdrug are rolling these tests out in health clinics within the pharmacies, and the GPHC said <clears throat> we don't regulate health clinics. So if it's done if it's done in a health clinic and it's done under the proper you know conditions, a nurse, then it's all proper, right and proper. It's fine. We we can't we can't we can't get involved in that. that. I just that was quite interesting. That just a sort of illustration of perhaps maybe a lack of the GPHC's powers there. I don't know. They they, don't, they can't regulate. The clinics themselves. So if a clinic's inside a pharmacy, yes, it regulates the pharmacy, but it doesn't regulate the, the clinic. That's the response we
0: got. And that's the reason why Superdrug can do it. Presumably those clinics are regulated by the CQC then, is that what they're saying? Yes.
1: Yeah, CQC are regulating them. But that's why Rudkin's letter about don't do this, don't do that at the moment, wouldn't apply to a Superdrug or, or, or a bigger multiple that has a health clinic inside, because they, it, not a loophole, it's just how it is, but it was just interesting, I didn't, I don't think we realised that the GPHC was unable to, I think there's an assumption there that, you know, they could regulate, they're, they're the regulator of a pharmacist in Great Britain, and pharmacy premises, well, but hang on a minute, their powers perhaps aren't as far-reaching as, we've, as we once thought.
0: Well, there's, there's that grey area, I guess, isn't there, between what is a, uh, a pharmacy, activity and what is a general healthcare activity which would be regulated by the CQC Uh, but I guess that the the barriers for an independent to provide the same service and therefore also submit to the regulatory uh, powers of the CQC would be I guess considerable. So yeah it's an interesting question isn't it? My good week uh, is a slightly odd one. I'm going to say it's been a good week for the debate about hub and spoke. So this this week we've seen the former pharmacy to you executive Daniel Lee announcing plans for an eight million pound dispensing facility that he says will level the playing field between independents and multiples for hub and spoke, and I think we're gonna I'm sure we're all gonna have a look at that particular uh, scenario as we as we go forward. But why I think it's a good week for the debate is that if we remember three or four years ago when the government proposed changing the legislation to level the playing field the general sense within pharmacy was it's the end of community pharmacies we know it the big boys are going to run everything there's no business case for hubs providing ind- supplying independence because there's there's no uh, margin in it and it ended up with the very odd experience i think in trade association history of trade associations, trade bodies, arguing against having a level playing field within legislation. So the fact that um, Daniel Lee and his new company, HubRx, uh, says that they're gonna build a facility with a capacity to dispense a million items a month, allowing independents to benefit from home-and-spoke technology, I think we'll start the debate off again. And I, for one, am particularly interested in, in, in seeing what their business case is gonna be that they're going to offer to independents at a point when I guess the legislation it's currently going through parliament isn't it as part of some other act uh, the medicines and medical devices bill Uh, when when it does level the playing field it'd be very interesting to see what the business case is and to see whether independents pick that up again
1: well interesting to hear what the uh, NPA have got to say about this because I don't from what I, I think they have tended to over the years Gone from no, it's a complete and utter no, no way are we having this in, in independent land. So, sort of now they're a bit more open minded about it. I, I, for years, since Up and Spoke was first mooted, there's it, always been that kind of argument about it does, it's just not, it just doesn't go with independent pharmacy, does it? It's, it's, a, it's a multiple pharmacy mechanism, it's not, it's, it just doesn't, it's not the right fit. As you said, we've got to see the business case, but I don't know whether this new. Uh, initiative that 's being rolled out by um, the chaps will actually i don 't know whether it, it has any more compelling evidence as to as to its suitability of independence on the face of it it seems like it, it sounds very good, but as you say, we need to hear more um, and i think until we hear more. There's just going to be a lot of
3: suspicion around it. I think. I mean, I I, I don't know whether that whether Daniel Lee feels that the, like his uh, model that he's developed sort of addresses those concerns. I've sort of I've put the question to him actually, and uh, waiting for his response. So um, I think the fact is that it it sort it sort of feels inevitable in one sense because the law is changing. I mean, it's it's imminent. It's in the Lords now, and it's just waiting for assent. So it does feel a little bit that. This is something that's inevitable it's coming and he's the first person to to capitalise on it so very interesting to see where it goes
1: but that that report though that the um uh the mpa ran they ran a study didn't they uh, you mentioned it Arthur, uh looking at hub and spoke models in other countries and i think it concluded that it's it doesn't improve safety and it's not uh more co- yeah, cost efficient it was a pretty as far as hub and spoke was concerned it was a pretty damning Report, from what I remember of its findings So I, it doesn't it, it wouldn't fill you with any confidence Particularly
3: independents who would have read that report Would have probably thought, mm, really? Yeah, I, to be honest I'm not sure I'm 100% confident the, Into the NPA's report, the methodology I remember they had these sort of headline findings When I actually dug into it To how they'd gone about it It was a little bit, cherry picked is too strong a word But they, they definitely Came to the conclusion that they wanted to
0: yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm with you, Arthur. I have to say that you know we've we've run in the in P three pharmacy. We've run a ser- we ran a series last year on automation, and we're running we're in the middle of another one this this year. And uh, when when it comes to talking to, I know it's not quite the same as hub and spoke. But when it to- comes to talking to pharmacists working with automate, automation in their pharmacy premises, they are unequivocal about. The fact that it it improves safety. Um, that having that automating aspects of the dispensing process improves safety. Uh, well, I haven't yet. I've yet to speak to somebody who says that it doesn't. So I think that's. I think that's going to be very interesting to see how it all how it all pans out. You know, I I hope that the debate itself actually also gets people thinking about hub and spoke as not simply being about robots. Because what's currently not allowed either is a group of independents in a small locality getting together and centralising aspects of the process for themselves. And, uh, you know, Hub and and Spoke is not automatically about big sheds and huge dispensing robots. It's about finding different ways of of, um, providing services. So I hope that that's not lost as well. When the debate restarts, so I think that's going to, at least provoke a discussion.
2: I think if ever there was a time to have that discussion, it would be now with the healthcare landscape so up in the air with the, the effects of COVID.
0: Right, we're going to move on. So uh, it's now time for our Pharmacist on the front line interview and I'm going to hand over to Neil to introduce his conversation this week.
1: Neil. Yeah, Rob, I had a very, very interesting uh chat with Peter Kelly, who's a community pharmacist based in, in London. Um, I often have done plenty of podcasts and, and uh, interviews over there down the years with Peter. He's a lovely guy, a uh, very bright young pharmacist. Um, and I went to his, I actually went to his house to, to do a, a, a podcast discussion on his, on, his, on his career, not only as a pharmacist, but as a, a stand-up comedian. And he's done plenty of gigs uh, mainly around east london and and, uh, um, and west london He's, he goes into pubs and, and does um, does he set and i 've seen him uh, he sent some footage over um, of one of his gigs and he was absolutely brilliant he 's a natural on, on stage uh, but it was a very interesting interview, a very funny interview at times quite an emotional interview as well um, It was uh, a bit of a roller coaster of emotions talking to him about his uh, his career so um, it was a a very 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 um, Enlightening interview I right, had with Peter.
0: Thanks, Neil. So let's hear it now.
1: But tell us, what are you what are you doing at the moment with your, your stand-up comedy? I mean, you're, you must be the only... I might be, might be wrong about this, so forgive me if there's anybody else out there who does the same as Peter, but you must, I'm, think, I'm assuming you're the only pharmacist stroke stand-up comic
4: there is in, in
1: the pharmacy sector. Is
4: that the I, I, well, believe it or not, on open mic level, on the lowest level of comedy, I have bumped into one or two other pharmacists. Wow! Really? Can you say who? Uh, who've done? I I, I can't I, I, I don't know their names offhand, um, but it, but I have I have bumped in like you know because you, you, when you go to open mic when you do comedy you, you meet an awful lot of people yeah but you don't meet them for a long time and and so you basically you you know you go to an open mic night you sit in the audience you you speak for five minutes and then you watch the show and then you might hang around for five to ten minutes afterwards. So you, you, you kind of, you get to know a bit about people, but you don't actually talk to people a lot. Okay, So if right. someone goes up and they talk about being a pharmacist, or yeah. whatever, like, so, so usually I might try to go up and say hello after, and say, I'm a pharmacist, and we might speak for a minute, but we wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily get to know each other too often. But are they,
1: they're, they're both, are they community pharmacists, though, are they? In the um,
4: well, one, one the one person I, I can clearly think of uh, is, he, he actually works in a, in a university. He's a pharmacist oh, okay, who, okay. who yeah. Teaches, yeah. In a, teaches in a university. Mm-hmm. I'm nearly certain I met a, a, another community pharmacist once, but I can't overly remember. On the circuit, is so, it? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. To be to be yeah. honest with you, like when when you first start, like when you first start comedy and you're on the circuit, you make an effort to talk to everyone afterwards because you're trying to find out about more gigs and you're trying to find yeah. out about the circuit and you're trying to make connections and all that. But when you're going a little bit longer, than, like me. You you don't want to hang around. To <laughs> so it's basically get <laughs> so in, get, out. get in, get done, get out. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, I've got this image of you
1: doing yeah. the stand up, then running back to the dispensary, doing no, some more medicines.
4: To... People people do stand up for lots of different reasons. Like some people do it for the social side of things. It is a very sociable thing. Uh, you, you you would have a lot of cases like this. You you might have someone who who has been divorced after many years, and 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 they don't have a huge. Social network of people to meet up with and hang out, and they might start doing stand up because you know you go along, you can go any night in a week. You go along, there's twenty or thirty people there. You can have a drink with people afterwards. You can so, mm. so 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 some people just do it for that for that kind of social yeah. side of it. Uh, other people kind of do it for therapy to kind of help rebuild their confidence so socially. So there is a there is this whole social side to stand up, but for but for, it was never that for me. Like I was very much. Uh, I looked at stand-up and I decided I want to do it and my approach to stand-up was very much like someone who would approach going to university I saw it as this was a topic this was a, a career a profession a skill set yeah, that yeah. I wanted to learn I went on Amazon and I bought every book you could buy about the theory and the science of stand-up and I read them how old were you at that point uh, I was 35 30, so, 34 35 so you were pharmacist first and then oh yeah 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 but but I said that like comedy was always something uh, it was always something I wanted to do uh, it was always something I believed I could do I think if you if you said to people who who I went to school with who haven't seen me since we were in school, and you said, do you think he... Do, do, do you know what he became in his life or whatever? And then if they said no, and then you said, do you think he became a pharmacist or a comedian? Yeah. I think they would all say comedian. They wouldn't say pharmacist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, I think... Why is that? I don't know. I think my per- my personality and I think who I am is more typical of a comedian than it is of of a pharmacist. Okay, that's uh, interesting. I, yeah. I, I uh, like...
1: There's no time to joke in pharmacies.
4: So that's a very serious question. I don't agree with that either. Oh, really? I don't agree no. with that either. Um, and I think when I first qualified as a pharmacist, uh, you, we did a lot on the course about uh, like how to interact with patients and how to, and how to interact with patients. And, and I know when I first qualified as a pharmacist, I, I spoke to patients in a very sterile, textbook way. And it, uh, I, I started to feel that it, it wasn't, f- I, I, I wasn't fully benefiting them. It didn't feel natural? It? it didn't feel natural. Uh, it, felt, it felt like it was creating barriers. Uh, it didn't feel natural. It didn't, it didn't, I didn't feel comfortable because I was, I was effectively trying to communicate in a way that wasn't natural to me. Mm. That didn't suit me. That, that was, I suppose, in many ways, it's dishonest to who I am. Because I was speaking in a way that I don't speak. Yeah, yeah and and then i started to realize like you know the the people who are coming in looking for health advice and different stuff like that they they're not like textbook people either no they know fashion human beings human <laughs> beings like who actually <laughs> yeah, like yeah. a bit of a laugh yeah, and yeah. like someone to talk to them in a human, stripped down, normal way. Oh that's interesting. And, and I, I and I found when I when I it it took me a while. I think I'd say it took me about two years of talking to patients and thinking I shouldn't be talking to them like this. I should be talking to them in a more natural human way. Yeah. And there's certainly nothing wrong with having a little bit of a laugh.
1: So how long has it now been since you you
4: have you had you your new approach to... to oh, so, patients. like I'm qualified 13 years. So 10, 11 years. 10 10 years, 10, 11 right, years. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Making Ten patients o-
1: laugh and...
4: Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and the <laughs> thing about it is, like, you know, the, having that human connection, it, it builds rapport and it does build trust. And the, yeah. the simple fact of the matter is, why should anyone believe anything we have to say? That's what you have to Like, why should they believe us? I come into the pharmacy, right? Um, I don't understand how drugs work. I'm a patient. I don't understand how drugs work. I I have to take I have to take what you say at face at, value yeah. at face value yeah. and and there's you know if you there's lots of reasons why you shouldn't take what we say at face value drug companies have misled people in the past they've got caught doing it yeah but is yeah. there not uh, like so if you if I wanted to convince people not to trust big pharma and not to trust pharmacists and not to trust doctors I could easily do it if i i could i could get a course i could get people to come to my house every week for an hour every week and i could hit them with case study after case study after case study where uh, medicine was dishonest and misleading and if that was all you were ever told about medicine then you wouldn't believe any of it you wouldn't trust anyway yes but the truth of it is it's not that clear-cut because while there has been bad things done and there has been misleading overall the majority has been beneficial. Yeah. Overall, it is good.
1: But isn't isn't the pharmacist's white coat enough
4: for that, no, to have for that kind of um, um, in, authoritative in, in, in trust? theory, yeah, but in practice, no. No, in practice, no. no. Uh, uh, yeah. Practice, one hundred percent, no. And then, and then also, there's other factors to it because, particularly when you're in a city like London, that's a very multicultural city. There are different ethnic groups and different minorities who have been completely treated yeah. unfairly by authority. I've been con- completely treated unfairly by the state and everything like we've that. We've seen that, yes. yeah, and we've sure seen in, that. In So why? And so. so why should they trust? So you have to gain that trust, and the only way you can gain that trust is by being honest. Yeah. And the only way you can be honest is by being yourself. But do you? Do you think? I mean,
1: I'll ask you two. Two. The first part of the question is: Do you? I mean, do you? Do you do you crack jokes with patients, or how do you,
4: how do you? Yeah, yeah. Look at you. You look at you. Feel it out. Like you feel it out. Do you know what I mean? Like it, and it depends on the situation. Like I wouldn't crack jokes with every patient, and it depends on what they're yeah. coming in and talking to you. And sometimes yeah. some issues are too tense and too serious. You certainly wouldn't. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you know. Mm. But there's other times where, yeah, why not? Can you them? give an example of a joke? uh, uh like. Listen, like, I've no specific examples, but like there's, I have customers who every time they come into the shop, we have a laugh and a joke. Like, Do you know what I mean? Like I have I've a guy who comes into me, you like this, I have a guy who comes into me every week and he will stand in the shop for an hour and a half talking football to me. And slagging me off about Man United and telling me how great uh, Chelsea are and how Chelsea are going to win everything. That's not comedy. That's del- that's delusion, basically. <laughs> <it>? That's delusion. <laughs> but you know, like this isn't a this isn't an thing. Like working in a pharmacy, you have to have a laugh. Yeah. Right? You have to interact with people. Like it, it, you, if you do the whole straight, you know, white coat, I'm authority, straight face, uh, textbook communication, ah, oh, that I I couldn't work like that. I couldn't. It's that's horrific. But do you think you're Kind of unique, a one-off no, no. I and
1: mean, one Do you think it takes a, 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 a learning? Because some, some pharmacists are quite oh. No, it takes... Le- okay, it takes, le- I, think,
4: I think it takes learning. I think it just takes a few years to become comfortable with yourself. It takes a little bit of time to, you know, when you qualify, you're told, this is what a pharmacist is. A pharmacist is A, B, C, and D. You know, they're professional, they're yeah. reliable, they're integrity. And you have to be all of those things, right? But you can also be yourself. You, you, you have to find a sweet spot in the middle where you can, you can show your personality, you can show who you are, you can have a bit of a laugh, but you're keeping that integrity and professionalism. And I think what happens is, it just takes a few years to find that point. But mm. I would say most pharmacists get there. Oh, okay. Right. Even even maybe the older generation of pharmacists yeah. are oh, a uh, bit grumpy in this important I, t- <laughs> t- I don't know. I think maybe some of the older generation are even better at it because yeah. they're more the more comfortable talking to other people. But I do think most mm. pharmacists do get there and I do think if you if you spoke to pharmacists up and down the country the relationship they have and the friendships they have with some of the patients is incredible. Yes. Like yeah. absolutely incredible like, yeah. you know. Um, there would be, be you would be talking to people who don't really have other people to talk to.
1: Yeah. So do you, Let's turn that. Let, let's flip that on, on its head a little bit and sort of we're talking about comedy in the pharmacy, but on the other side of the scale, do you do you talk about pharmacy in your stand?
4: I mean, do you use pharmacy? Are there pharmacy jokes? About, there are. You know, there, there. There. are. There. Like, there's no kind of like. Obviously, in comedy, you're influenced by why, by what happens around you. So I would probably, you know, if you were to compare me to another stand-up, like I would have a lot more jokes about illness and health. Yeah. Um. Than than other comedians, because that's what I'm surrounded by. So in comedy, your 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 inspiration comes from around you. So like. Does that kind of stuff roll off the tongue? Does it? No, it doesn't. It it just it just sort of comes. Like the truth of it is, it would it wouldn't make any sense if a pharmacist like me was talking about, how, like my whole comedy was about office culture. Right. And yeah. all these annoying things yeah. that people do in an office. Because I don't work in an office. So th- do you know what I mean? If someone like you'll have comedians who work in offices and they'll be able to do all these routines mm-hmm. about offices, you like teachers will be able to talk about children. Like but it so it wouldn't make any sense for me to, to have these conversations. So a lot of yes, yeah, so a, a lot of my So predominantly based on what
1: you what you do is for, for Yeah, you know, yeah.
4: Like for, I would say that the two the two big topics in my comedy are Health-related topics and politics, because my dad was a politician, and I was—I grew up in an environment where I was one hundred percent submerged in politics. Oh, okay. Yeah. Every dinner. A pre- what, what, brek- what kind of party was he affiliated to? He was affiliated with the Fianna Fáil party. Oh, okay, yes. yeah. yeah. The, the, the origins of this party would make no sense to anybody in England. they making a comeback. They, they're back in government now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mihal Martin is the Prime Minister of Ireland. Now he's mm. the Taoiseach of Ireland. And he, he was a very good friend of my dad's. And, and I've met I've met Michal loads of times. Mm. And uh, he's a great guy. Like, uh, I've, I've had a huge amount of time for him. He actually... My um my dad died two years ago, and Ooh, um, I'm and when he died, Micheál Martin, because Micheál Martin was the leader of the opposition party in Ireland, the Fianna Fáil party, which my dad was a member of, Micheál Martin rang up my uncle the day before the funeral, and he said, uh, I want to give the eulogy at the funeral. Wow. And my uncle said, uh, you're too late, someone else is already doing it. I was doing it. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. And obviously
3: you did a
1: much better job than he would have done. So, that, so. <laughs> so
4: uh, Fianna Fáil, the, the political party, they want, they wanted a copy a, a copy of what I was going to say before I said it in the church. Right Now, I was lucky. I was so lucky I had started stand-up at this time. Um, and one of the things I always said about doing stand-up people but they always thought it was a bit nuts like one of the great side effects of doing something like stand-up it means that when you get an opportunity to speak at a family event or a private do a wedding or a birthday party or a funeral like that yeah you you're a confident public speaker yes You're, you're able to do it and 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 to be able to do it on that stage is special yes like it is like there's it's special because when my dad died there was 700 people in the cathedral in longford right i got up and gave a five minute eulogy and i made those people laugh twice and my dad loved making people laugh and my dad loved giving public speaks where he made people laugh so it was a lovely tribute ah yes yeah yeah, yeah like it was it was it was brilliant and and to be able to do that for my mother and everything was just was magical yeah, and and the only reason I was able to confidently do that was because I had done stand up. Yes, yeah, and, It's a very it's and powerful. And I didn't have to. About. I didn't have to write any notes. I didn't have to read from a script. I was able to go up, pretty much, speak off the cuff. Were you nervous, nervous at all? I was nervous. The... I, did, I didn't sleep the night before. I was nervous. I was nervous, hmm. but I was confident. Yeah, like it was. It was. I, I. I was nervous, and I and I really wanted to do well, and like there was it. It was a very strange thing for me because my dad had first got cancer five years earlier and he got bowel cancer. And pharmacists or the medical people listening to this will kind of know the first time you get bowel cancer, your survival rate is high. So the first time you get it, I think something like 80% of people will live, right? But if it comes back, you're pretty much dead. Right. Right. Mm. And for a, a high percentage of people, it will come back within five years. And when it comes mm. back the second time, it's usually a lot more aggressive and, and it comes a lot quicker. So I knew that he had you know he had bowel cancer, and I knew that there was, you know, I think instinctively I knew if he gets it again, he'll be dead quickly. Mm. And I think I felt it probably would happen at some stage. And then I also knew because of his political past, I knew how big his funeral would be and I knew who would be at his funeral.
3: Mm. Yeah.
4: But I also knew that he would have loved for me to give the eulogy. And he would have loved for me to be able to make everyone laugh. Yes. Yeah. So I (coughs) had it... So, like so, it's, it's, a, in, so I never really admitted this to many people, but for, for a couple of years before he died, I, I thought about speaking at his funeral. I used to think about it. Really? I, used to, really? I used to imagine what it would be like. like. You were mentally preparing yourself. I was yourself mentally preparing myself for it. I mean, in some,
1: in some, I'll I like, say a painful memory, it's obviously a very sad occasion, but at the same time, it, uh, in a weird way, I ha- not a happy memory, but a kind of... And and nice tribute tr- for, to him for and me. It's yeah. a happy memory. Yeah. For me, it's
4: a happy memory. Like, do you know what I mean? My mm. my, my dad lived to be seventy four. He he, yeah. he lived a very successful life. He lived a very colorful life. He he had a he had a great life. Like, you you can't look at my dad's life in any kind of sorrowful way because no. it it wasn't a sad. No. Life. No. He he had a tremendous life. Yeah. And and he was a very philosophical person too. He he wouldn't. He was not want any, He was not watching to be no, looking, course. looking back and <clears throat> feeling sad. And and the the the, the look at the funeral was was amazing. Like uh, Bertie Ahern, the ex prime minister of Ireland, he came to he wow, came to the funeral. Had, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, lovely. it was. It was.
1: But in a weird way, I mean, it was obviously a, a special occasion for you person. I mean, an important occasion for you personally. But it would, would would I don't know doing a. Um, a gig in at Wembley Stadium in front of, our, I don't know, 100,000 fans. Yeah. It's been
4: easier to do than doing that? I mean, uh, well, it's, 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 in terms of the nerves, <laughs> yeah, okay. in terms of what it meant to you. <laughs> okay, yeah. all right, let's, let's start this. <laughs> I don't think comedy can be done to that big of an audience, right? I don't, uh, like, I think music. It's very hard that's a question. Yeah, I don't yeah. think music, Maybe it can, like, people have, mm. like, I think maybe 20, 30,000 people is kind of max. Um, I look at I. I would. Say it's a different type of. It's a different type of nerves. It's a different type of thing. I think something like speaking of that is it, is harder. Is harder. Well, the funeral. Then. Yeah. It, because it has a personal resonance to you. Yeah, it's it, per- personal. And, and you know your, your family and everyone mm. is there, and it's just um, it's just harder. There's more things to consider.
1: If you make a mistake in front of eighty thousand strangers, who cares? But if you do it in front of five yeah. or six people that you really mean a lot to
4: you yeah it's, it's a, but, the, but the other side like I don't yeah. know like the thing about it is you say make a mistake but like the it, it, comedy is such a free flowing thing like there's no um, there's always mistakes but there's never mistakes like the truth of it is every time I perform comedy I will make a mistake but you, it, no yeah. one will know I've made a mistake okay, because you, know mean, the, cause you don't know what I was trying to do to begin with <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you know what I mean and then the other, the other kind of beauty like the, I suppose the safety valve you have in comedy that you Probably don't have in a funeral setting. It's the safety valve you have in comedy. Is if it's going really bad, you can talk about how it's going really bad and how it makes you feel, uh. and that's always funny. And you can't so do that in a funeral. It, no, you? so you hmm. like you just have that. So in comedy, if once you get comfortable with with feeling the room and talking about what's going on, and you talk about like. It, you know, if you do a show and everything starts going wrong and then you start talking about how everything's going wrong and if you feel really bad but people will people will think it's the funniest thing they've ever heard in their life it, yes do you yeah. know what I mean yeah like so can you can you remember your first gig your first yeah, your yeah. very first one yeah I can remember the, like the um, the first the first three gigs I had were in small pub rooms in Two of them were in East London, one of them was in North London. And they were in very small basement rooms in pubs. And there might have been 10 people in attendance for those three gigs. Yeah. And I remember the first one. Or well, 10 in each gig? 10 people, <coughs> yes. There's no one there. And, yeah. and I remember the first one, I, 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 you get five minutes. The five minutes start. And, and I, I remember that the very first one, within those five minutes, I made those 10 people laugh three times. Which I thought yeah. was incredible. I actually thought I'm gifted. I'm a, I'm a <laughs> prodigy. <laughs> you thought you were Jack Dee or something. Yeah. You, or now, by professional <clears throat> comedy standards, you should be able to make people laugh thirty times in five minutes. That's wow. That's industry standard, right? Yeah. So three, So I did these three gigs, right? And then I booked myself into a thing called King Gong in the comedy store in London. Yes. Right? And you, you. This happens once a month. And you go there And the comedy store It's the best comedy club in the world It's like so It just oozes class Prestige you got like pictures of all the famous people on the wall Yeah yeah. Like it's laid out brilliantly It's intimidating? It st- sounds intimidating The sound system is amazing Right And anyone can go And what you do is You have 400 people And you go up on stage And you try and make them laugh And if you're good They 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 let you do five minutes. If you're bad, they boo you off stage. Ouch. Mm. They boo, and they're, and they're brutal. I, after doing <clears throat> three gigs to ten people, showed up at this room full of 400 people, and I thought, I've got a chance. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I
4: honestly thought. I thought I could do it. Like I thought I could do it. And, and I, I, I jumped up on the stage like... Full of confidence. Like, I I don't think I've ever been that confident on stage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I jumped up. And I remember (laughs) I jumped up on the stage, right? And there was a couple in the front row. And and I could just see the girl nudge the guy. And she pointed at me. And she went, he'll be good. Like, I looked the part. And I got up. And for two minutes, I just talked nonstop. And nobody laughed. And then they just booed me off. And I I was devastated. I was like, "Oh no!" I couldn't believe it. But I was like, and then King Kong, you can, you, anyone can do it. <clears throat> anyone can do it. You don't need any experience. Anyone can apply to do it. And if you... You need, you need guts, it, I think. You need guts, but anyone can do it. Apply. But you can only do it every six months. So right, if you want to right. do it again... Where's, that? where's, where's King Gong? King Gong King- is in Leicester Square, Comedy Store, Leicester Square. Oh, yes. And once yes. a month. It's yeah. the last, last Sunday or
1: the first Monday of the month or something is like that. Is it that little... Dingy looking nightclub thing on the outside. You go in and it's yeah, look, of, it's just a door it, on the door. outside. But yeah. when you go in, it's not.
4: There's nothing dingy about it when you go in. It's state yeah. of the art. It's 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 like it's a fabulous place inside. It it would it would sell out a, a show every night in a week. There could be nine shows yes, a week. Yeah. I think the late shows don't always sell out on a Friday, Saturday, but like Monday to Friday, Monday to Sunday, that place sounds like Four hundred people, people are paying 25 wow. twenty five pound a ticket. That's it's a,
1: it's a it's an in- four hundred people. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
4: it's an incredible um institution. Yeah. Um, so you have six months to do it. So then I was like, okay, I was like, now nah, that's my that's my goal, that's my target. I I said my goal was to go to King Kong and last five minutes, and I thought it would take me four years. And I went out And I went to loads of little gigs And every gig I went to I was preparing for Six months later Right So The first time I've lasted Two minutes So six months later I've done I've gone gigging Three to four times a week For six months Right Into little rooms With audiences Ranging from Ten people to Fifty people Right And I'm practising And everything I'm doing Is I'm trying to prepare For going back To the comedy store And I went back Six months later And I walked on stage and I told one joke, and I got booed off stage. Oh, so, no. After six months? After six involved, months. Uh, so, like, from <coughs> lasting two minutes to putting in six months' worth of hard work. You must have been I was oh, demoralised. I was like... Did you think at that point I might
1: stop this no, now? No, do you know what?
4: It was so weird because I was like even though I got booed off stage a lot quicker, <laughs> and, <laughs> and the boos were a lot louder. <laughs> yeah. Like. Yeah. So it's like kind of less brutal
1: in a kind of... more like, brutal. It, was, it more was, brutal. was more brutal.
4: But <laughs> I, I did feel that I told the proper joke, whereas the first time I didn't tell a proper joke. Yeah. So this time, even though I had done a lot worse, structurally I had done something a bit better. So then I went off. So then I was like, okay... It was a bad joke. It wasn't a nice joke. But the structure was good. The structure was right. Can you say what the joke was? I'm on, I've never, I never said it again. And I'll never say it again. And hopefully nobody has any footage of that joke. Because you're, you're, you're still only kind of learning, you know. And, and a lot of comedians, a lot of great yeah. comedians, and I suppose a lot of the more famous comedians, they do kind of darker material and everything like that. But, but, but what you don't realise is the, the, it, you have to be highly skilled to do that type of material it,
1: to me it sounds daunting but but you're making it sound like it's achievable and fun yeah it, yeah it's, yeah, it's, it's it like
4: i suppose look at the, the great illusion not that i'm going to be a comic by the author, The, the, the great illusion mm. of, of of stand-up is it's it's like say if you see someone okay say you see someone skiing for the first time you've never seen anyone yeah. ski and you look up and there's a guy he's on a pair of skis and he he is flying down a mountain and you just think First time you see it, you would think that there's no control there. You don't realise there's so much technique. Yeah. And that, like, you know, he's moving the skis this way and that way. And actually, even though it looks like the person is flying uncontrollably down the mountain, they are in complete control all the time. Yeah. And they are using... Remaining calm, I suppose. They're remaining calm and they've got technique and they've slowly built up to that skill. And that's the same with comedy. Like, you, the illusion is it looks like you have just stepped out of the crowd. Stood up on a stage and started talking. Right. But you haven't. You've spent years cultivating skill sets to do that and techniques. Mm. And there's loads of tricks and techniques that you're falling back on. Yeah. So it's an illusion. Yes. And the reason it's an illusion is because people always see people how they see themselves. So you don't see all the work that went on behind the scenes. And you start imagining, what if someone asked me to get up and speak now? And you start comparing yourself yeah. to this person, but well, what you don't realise is they have spent yeah. hundreds of hours behind the scenes, yes. yeah. practicing that all the time. They make it look
1: seamless. I must say, I've got a couple of questions um, yeah. to, to sort of finish on. Really, the first one is: um, do, you, do you have you since you started your stand up comi- comedy? Have you got? Have you found that you've had more abuse as a stand up comi- comic, or as a pharmacist? Oh
4: like way more as a pharmacist
1: like I tell you you know (laughs) I shouldn't laugh at that it's It's, it's not funny but
4: the world the world is a funny place like the world is genuinely a funny place like the world Mm. we live in a world that makes no sense absolutely no sense right because for me as a pharmacist I studied from all my life I went to school and my parents pushed me to get the highest grades I could possibly get in school and I worked really hard right and then as a teenager, I decided I want to do pharmacy. And then for a couple of years, I had this focus to get the grades good enough to get into pharmacy. And it was not easy. It was really, really difficult. And it was a high level of intense output. Yeah. For yeah. a long pr- period of time. A lot of hard work. Yeah. To, get, to get there. Mm. with a lot of people helping me, you know, different teachers um, and, and family... And then you get there and then the course is extremely difficult yeah it is not an easy course it is really 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 hard and then you get through that and then you've got a really tough job and you've got so there's so many things you have to do to like to be a tip a pharmacist running a, a community pharmacy is a highly competent highly skilled yeah um, operator like it's it's tough yes. it is hard right? but people outside pharmacy don't really see that. I don't know mm. why they don't see it. They just don't see it. People think it's easy to be a pharmacist. They think it, they don't think it's hard to become a pharmacist. They don't think pharmacists are that s- anything special about them. And uh, well, I think
1: they probably think they are shopkeepers, don't they? Rather yeah, they. they, they professionals, people see it in ridiculous. a
4: very belittling, belittling way. There is this like the, the 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 majority of the population are not genetically smart enough to be a pharmacist. Right. Not good enough. Yeah. Like. Work hard all you want. If you if you do not have, uh, like if you do not have the acumen, or or the, uh, what's the word, aptitude or whatever, aptitude, yeah. aptitude. Yeah. yeah, for like maths and chemistry and physics, yeah. and science subjects mm. and, and, and maths and probabilities I and, mean, you you you're not going to get on a pharmacy course and you're not going to pass that course. No. you need to be smart to be a pharmacist. You of need course, to be yeah. really really yeah. smart. I'm gonna tell, I'm going to tell you here now. The average pharmacist is smarter than the average comedian. Right. 100%. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100, like, yeah. you've got to be. And you, hard work won't get you through pharmacy if you do not, if you're not naturally good at science and maths. Yes. Yeah. Hard work's not going to get you right? Yeah. Uh, comedy um, is different. Like, there, there are comedians who aren't smart. But, uh, but in terms of... <clears throat> I, but I but likewise, like a... you probably, you do need... I, I will yeah. agree with you... You do need to have some instinctive comedic type. Well, we
1: we'll look forward to uh, Peter Kelly with the London Palladium or uh, Peter <laughs> Kelly, you know, with, uh, with live at with live Jack, with the Apollo. Live at Apollo okay, live with with the, the Apollo, Jack D, the kind of yeah. uh, secondary act to, uh, to Peter Kelly. That'd be quite good. But um, th- thanks, thanks very much, Peter. Oh, we enjoyed talking to on? you. Thanks for having me. Cheers.
0: Uh, thanks there to Peter Kelly. some fascinating insights into the science of comedy I love the link between telling jokes and drug discovery look out for him at a comedy night near you when we can have such a thing again or maybe even on the telly one day soon and nice one Neil for a great listen so now we're going to move to bad week so Helena who would you pick out as having had a bad week this week
2: um, my bad week is a what rather than a who, um, but I would say it's been a bad week for non-COVID health projections, particularly um, cancer. So this is something we've covered in TM a lot recently um, and there have been so many news reports of um, potential cancer pandemics in the years to come um, as a result of um, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. This week in particular, um, studies have been published in the Lancet Lancet Oncology um, estimating that there'll be around three and a half thousand avoidable deaths in the next five years as a result of the pandemic um, for four major cancer types of breast, colorectal, esophageal and lung. Um, another study looking at all types of cancer put the figure at 35,000 excess deaths within a year due to delays in treatment and um, diagnosis as well um, due to, to the virus. So some seriously concerning figures there. Um, but I think as far as pharmacy is concerned, and to, to put a positive spin on on a Potentially bad thing. Um, I think it presents a huge opportunity to encourage customers to seek medical advice for for concerning symptoms. Um, obviously, the NHS is still open, and for cancer in particular, seeking timely treatment, um, if it's suspected, and getting that diagnosed is is so important. Um, and who knows whether those figures um, will um will kind of happen um it'll be a waiting game to to see um but i think getting that message across to customers um is a first step in um in preventing um those deaths and i think it's being um kind of innovative um with getting that message across to customers and patients when fewer people are visiting stores in person obviously um as things start to um, open up a little bit more, um, that might, might increase, but it's about using social media and leaflets with prescriptions and phone consultations and things to really get that message out there. Um, I think waiting lists are inevitably going to be longer, so there might still be delays, but making sure that people are getting the, the help and support and treatment that they need um, is crucial.
0: Thank you very much. I think that's a really important, uh, an important story, isn't it? And a, and a great opportunity for community pharmacy teams. Arthur, bad week for you.
3: Uh, I'm going to tread carefully here because we don't know all of the details, but I'm going to say it's a bad week for NIMBYs, uh, not in my backyard. Because this is the story of a pharmacy in Belfast, Jay McGregor's chemist, who'd been providing a needle exchange service for over 20 years, and they've now said they're going to withdraw it after local residents were pro- te- protesting outside the pharmacy saying there'd been sort of uh, anti-social behaviour from service users. Now we don't know the details of that antisocial behaviour, so need to, need to tread carefully there. But it does seem a shame when it's such a vital service in the community that, and you know, I can only assume it was, you know, provided very well, run very well by the pharmacy, um, that it Feels under such pressure to to withdraw this, so yeah, I I, I think that's I I think that's a it's a shame for, it's a, it's a shame for the, the the people who need the service. I mean, they are going to be sort of moved on onto other services in Belfast, which is you know vitally important. But I do I do think it's a real shame, and um, I would hope that I would hope also it's not a case of sort of a middle class community exporting an antisocial behaviour to a more deprived community if you know if the, if that's the case here
0: yeah let's hope that all gets resolved uh for the interest in the interests of the service users and the and the pharmacy alike neil over to you
1: i feel a bit guilty saying this because i think um one of the government ministers that's kind of not been not been covered in disgrace during this pandemic uh was is the chancellor rishi sunak um and i think you know i think he's genuinely uh been a a bit of a bright light in a long dark tunnel during this uh, pandemic, the financial support he's given businesses or tried to give businesses and the furlough scheme could, you know, we we can only applaud that. But I think him and the Treasury have not covered themselves in glory this week when we heard that 900,000 public sector workers are going to get a pay rise. Um, And that includes teachers, doctors, and they're going to receive uh, an above inflation pay rise of up to 3.1%. Uh, which the Treasury said would come from, quote, existing departmental budgets. Um, Now, the obvious question is, what about pharmacists? Uh, You know, doctors again at the forefront, pay rise, nothing for pharmacists. And, you know, credit to Sandra Gidley at the RPS. She came out and said it was a a real kick in the teeth for for pharmacists. I mean, you know, they've worked just as hard during this pandemic as doctors and nurses and, and the rest of the NHS why haven't they been recognised? Uh, to be honest with you, I wasn't completely surprised or appalled by this because what else is new, really? I mean, you know, it, it kind of reminded me of the, uh, the you know, the, the death in benefits scheme where Matt Hancock completely disregarded pharmacists on the front line and then said, oh, oh yeah, sorry, I, of course, yes, pharmacists are, are going to be involved in this. Um, But credit to to, to Sandra Gidley, she came out and and defended uh, um, a pharmacy. Matt Hancock, well, you know, what else is to be said about him? I don't think there's anything... I don't think I can give him any more negative, any more bad publicity or any more negative kind of comments. I think it's just just typical of the government, really. So for me, um, the Treasury, Rishi Sunak, the government, once again, disregarding pharmacy, uh, pharmacists... And giving everyone else a pay rise except our unsung heroes on the front line yeah.
3: like you're not gonna, I'm, i definitely don't disagree that farmers deserve a pay rise you know and a good one at that but were were they ever going to be included in this considering that the um, the covid nineteen funding negotiations are ongoing were they ever like was was there ever a possibility that they would be included in this in this pay rise announcement well it,
1: it, the covid nineteen um ongoing negotiations I mean they're, they're, in a way in one sense that's kind of separate to this because and the reason I say that is because you know if the government are going to um, reward decide to reward public, uh, public sector workers and, help, and in this case doctors for the role that they've played on, on the front line of the NHS during this awful pandemic then why are they disregarding blatantly disregarding once again ignoring pharmacists because pharmacists have put them you know, we all know they've, they've, put, they've put their lives on the line and they've risked their lives to go out there and, and open up on a bank holiday or open up, you know. They've had to put up with a lack of PPE. They've had to put up with, you know, all the other stuff going on. So I, I just, it, it just rubs salt into the wounds once again. And I, and I completely felt Sandra's words when she said that it was a real kick in the teeth. It is. It's, a real, real, it's more than a kick in the teeth, actually.
0: I think the worst bit of it for me is that they don't even have a, a kind of ready answer because Arthur poses, a, you know, a good question: Would they ever have been included? Because some of this is partly the response to the doctors and dentists review body, uh, which is a separate part of the whole architecture of how health uh, professionals get paid. So, um, but they didn't even have an answer. They didn't recognise that certain groups would be, would be countering with, you know, as 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 the the president of the RPS has. They hadn't even, you know, recognised that that would come back to to come back to them and they have that answer. The other thing that struck me about the whole thing is it's not as generous as it looks, is it? Because there's no extra money going into the system to pay for this. They've got to find these pay awards from within existing resources. So uh, if, you look at, if you look at, say, I heard a head teacher the day of the announcement saying this is all very helpful, you know, 2.8% or whatever it is for teachers. But frankly, I'd rather have not had the money than be faced with having to find that 2.8% from existing resources within the school, because I'm going to have to take it from somewhere and that would inevitably impact on, on the, on the kids, you know, so it, it looks like it, it's one of those giving with one hand and taking away with the other, uh, other arguments, isn't it? And one of those, another announcements that you think, well, it, okay, it's all got to be paid for at some point and it looks very generous, but actually if it means that services are going to be worse as a result, um, it's not quite as good as it as it first appears so i you know i'd say a doubly bad week for the chancellor because it looks like his first big misstep to me
1: yeah i agree with that yeah totally he's he's, he's been a uh, uh, i think he's he's one of the rare ministers during this pandemic that's covered himself in a bit of you know he's done well i think with soon people are talking about him as a maybe even the next prime minister i don't know he's a, he's a very assured kind of young chap who, who's done a good job but he, he he's had a bit of a I think a bit of a
0: mare I think this week. He's also got very nice hair as well, hasn't he? It is um, very nice anyway, hair. so my 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 bad week. This I'm going to give a bad week this week to non-science national news journalists. Now I don't know about you, but I'm a little. I was a little concerned about the f- rave announcements of uh, a coronavirus vaccine. So we've got a you know we've got a vaccine, all a little bit overblown. Uh, vaccines by Christmas. Uh, wouldn't it be great if we put, you know, the COVID vaccine with a flu jab in one syringe, bish, bash, Bosch, 40 million people, all sorted. And then we get the more sober reflection and a more realistic assessment about what might actually happen. There's still a lot to play for. And the idea of a combined vaccine sounds, you know, would be fantastic, but that's probably years away because of what needs to be done. Um, having said that, I think there's clearly now work to be done in pharmacy to think about how they get more involved in what clearly is being touted as a more structured and fundamental vaccine campaign this year. Um, And, you know, that's another opportunity. we talked about it before on previous pods about primary care networks and how pharmacy gets involved in those. Um, But yeah, I just think, you know, that I know people want a bit of good news, but every single, you know, slight step forward appears to be jumped on as, as the future and the answer and it's going to be here by next week and it's all going to be great.
3: Mm, I think antibody tests are a good case of that because they were touted as you know this is going to be the thing that's get getting the economy moving again whereas now it turns out that they do have they do have a use but it's very much not that.
1: I, I just think that you know, um, we are jumping the gun a lot aren't we I mean I think I read somewhere that the government are looking to um, provide uh, COVID vaccines during this season's flu flu uh, rollout. I mean, that, that it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, how can you know, we have a promising vaccine, but that's not a vaccine, is it? And it takes 12 to 18 months to get a vaccine. So we're nowhere near really getting a vaccine. So how can they be talking in those terms, you know, get out, rolling it out during this year's flu? So it just, it's just ridiculous.
0: Just as a side issue, I, I saw the other day that the US government had given Pfizer a grant of 1.9 billion dollars to develop a vaccine and I just thought I mean not only is that a huge number but how on earth do you settle on 1.9 billion dollars as the as the figure Uh, you know that's just the way my mind works well that about wraps it up for this week so thanks to Neil Arthur and Helena for giving us plenty to think about And once again to Peter Kelly for some great tales combining pharmacy and comedy. This podcast is available for download from the Pharmacy Magazine website and all the usual download sites. Just search for Talking Pharmacy. Keep sending your comments to Twitter using the hashtag Talking Pharmacy. Richard Thomas will be back in charge next week. But until then, from all of us here, it's goodbye and thanks for listening.